Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk with someone else who's taken their reins off the industry horse and steered it off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Our guest today is a disruptor in SaaS sales. Now, let me give you some stats, all right? There's tons of stats out there, but I picked some key ones. The SaaS market is currently growing by 18% each year. Our guests will probably tell us if that's right or wrong, but it's expected to grow to 22% in this year, 2022. SaaS is being considered to transform IT from a cost center to a value center. That's very key. Gartner predicts that the service-based cloud application industry will be worth $147 billion by the end of this year. I think that number is a little low personally from what I've seen. And this is really key because there's lots of disruption in the healthcare industry, but SaaS adoption in the healthcare industry is already growing at a rate of 20% per year. Now, with that comes changes in how SaaS and enterprise SaaS is sold. And since high dollar SaaS deals tend to involve at least a half a dozen stakeholders, Stakeholders are more educated in tech today, right? And there is crazy competition. So enter our guest. He figured out painfully, I will say, how to create a framework, actually two frameworks that helps himself and others close over seven figures in ARR. Now he is the host of a podcast, a successful podcast called SaaS Sales Players, and he has merged PR with SaaS sales and influencer marketing. Enter Jesse Woodbury. KJ, thanks so much. Jesse Woodbury. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that would have been uh, you know, a fantastic intro already on top of an amazing intro. KJ, it's such a pleasure to, to be on the show and I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Yeah, me too. SaaS sales. So SaaS is uh, a big target audience for my firm, right? So tell me before we get into this, because I'm really interested to see how SaaS needs to be disrupted in sales. But what's your key, your main ingredient for disruption? Absolutely. So I had a shift a few years ago where I made this realization and it was sort of this, this bridge that I crossed that once I crossed it, I, I could never go back to the old way of doing things. And I know it sounds crazy to talk about the old way in an industry like SaaS, where everything is new and novel. Tech is always on the forefront. Uh, they're the vanguard in the business world. But I came up in the industry in a world where people were still making cold calls and sending cold emails and doing sort of the traditional sales tactics to try to get pipeline built for their sales operations. And, and what I observed was I needed to shift from being a you know stereotypical salesperson to being a creator and having a creator mindset. And I'll dig into what that means. Basically, what I observed was as I put content out in the world, I was actually attracting my target buyers better than if I were just making 100 phone calls a day or sending 100 emails cold out to you know random people every single day. So creating content, and then I changed my mindset from being you know a salesperson to being a partner consultant. And content is sort of the lifeblood of being able to make that transition, right? So being able to think of my prospects, who in many cases are executive level buyers, CEOs, you know, COOs, CTOs, and large companies, being able to think of myself on an equal playing field and consider myself a strategic consultant to those individuals rather than just someone trying to sell a widget to them. And so I made this, this sort of 
mental transformation and mindset transformation and my results changed dramatically. I was able to increase my deal sizes, deals closed faster. I was able to have more, you know, span of control of, of each, you know, deal cycle. I got a lot of people involved and it really was a complete game changer to, you know, so to speak in terms of, of the production and the results that I saw from, from this transformation. Wow. So actually when I listened to you, I kind of hear two things. So you said, be a creator. That's the main mm-hmm. ingredient. But another thing that you said is that you changed your mindset. Yes. It seems to me that you had to do that to be a creator. So what is that mindset? What is that decision that you changed? Absolutely. So the the change was actually, I started approaching all of my sales activities you know, as a creator, but also started approaching them as I need to help right? I'm not here to sell a product or a service or a tool or a platform. I need to help solve problems. So that is the first key. You're exactly right. That's the first thing that uh, needed to change before you can start thinking about creating content for, uh, you know, the purpose of generating leads and interest. You do have to first change the mindset. You have to stop thinking of things as we need to knock down this door and sell our product. We need to educate our market and we need to get the right content in front of the right people. And what will end up happening is people will come to you instead of you having to go knock the door down. So yes, that that mindset uh, transition is what started first. And I honestly, this was years ago. I don't recall exactly how it happened. I just remember almost having an epiphany one day saying, you know, I said to myself, wait a minute. I'm trying to help people solve business problems. I'm not trying to just sell for the sake of selling. And as I'm approaching my market and my buyers with this language of, hey, I want to show you a demo of this cool product, it's not working. And people can sort of smell the, the salesperson on me, right? And it's it's not effective. I'm not scaling up my business. And then, you know, again, just kind of had this sudden epiphany where I changed the way that I thought and said, you know what? I'm helping these businesses solve multi-million dollar problems in some cases. How do I rethink that so that when I go out to market and I talk to these buyers uh, and talk to these potential buyers, how do I show them that I'm I'm a helper? I'm not a uh, you know a seller. I don't have commission breath as they call it in the business. Uh, this is, <laughs> yeah, uh, I've heard that. There's a you know Josh Braun talks about commission breath a lot. He's great. You know, I love that. <laughs> I, I don't want to. I want to mask my commission breath and actually you know again go out and and get embedded in these businesses and work with them to solve these problems. And in so doing, I build a lot of credibility. I build a lot of trust with the buyers. And ultimately, the deal sizes are much larger. They happen. Much much faster. And it's just a lot less painful because the, the focus stops being around me selling a deal and the focus is around me solving huge problems in, in the business world. And it's much more fulfilling. Being in the sales profession can be a grind. It can be a grind, especially if you have that sort of sell-first mentality and you're not thinking in terms of helping or consulting or being an equal partner to your buyers and a strategist for them. And then with all that mindset shift come, it makes it easy from that point to create relevant content. And you don't even have to create it. You can curate content that's already out there and package it up in a way that your buyers say, wow, you're obviously a thought leader uh, for our industry. We should buy from you because you obviously know what you're talking about. You bring that experience. And so I'll share just really quickly with your listeners one idea, uh, especially for anyone out there who is on the front line selling to large companies. It's as easy as going and compiling articles that are relevant to your industry, reading those, understanding them, making sure that you're, you know, you're clear on your understanding. Don't just skim through them and pretend you know what they say. And take some tidbits out of those or some snippets out of those and, and that, that 
might be relevant to your buyers that they might find interesting. So what you're essentially doing is you're a content curator. You're curating relevant content, taking that, making it digestible, and then sending over little snippets to your buyers and saying, hey, I, you know, I read this article in Harvard Business Review or Forbes or it, really any publication. There's also lots of industry-specific publications. So in my business, I read a lot of contacts in our weekly and there's some other, uh, you know, execs in the know is another great one. So you can get as specific or as broad as you'd like, but curating that and packaging it up and sending it over and nurturing those, those leads. So it's funny, even in the middle of a buying cycle, I'm in the middle of a couple of deal cycles right now in my, in my day job. And I still have just a cadence where even though I'm, I'm deep in the conversations, I just set a reminder on my calendar to go and review a relevant article on Forbes or something like that. Harvard Business Review is one of my favorites. Find something that is relevant to the last conversation I had with the prospect and just trickle that out over time. And what I find is your prospects are never going to go quiet on you if you do this, because again, you're adding this consistent value. You don't want to create noise or clutter for your prospects, but if it's real valuable content that you've read and understood yourself and you can position in a way that is relevant to the current conversations at hand, there's really nothing else you can do that's more powerful than that to, to create that trust and build that credibility and, and position yourself, posture yourself as a partner in their business. I find that fascinating because when you're selling to the decision makers that you are selling to, they want people to talk to them about the hard issues that they're facing. They do. They don't like right, yes absolutely. men. They don't like commission breath. Like, I've never heard that before. I love it. <laughs> yeah. um, but your disruption is becoming a thought leader. And that is very interesting in SaaS sales because being a thought leader really creates trust because it's a peer-to-peer -peer sale, right? Let's talk about the status quo mm -hmm. of not just sales, but SaaS sales, right? You know, how is this, how is this disruptive? How, like, let's talk about the good, the bad, the ugly. Absolutely. What is the status quo? Yeah. So when I came into the business about a decade ago, and I'm in the big scheme of things, still pretty new to SaaS sales, it, you know, 10 years in isn't that long. And I've have, you know, I've had managers over the years who were, 20, 30 years in the technology sales business and where they started, I'll go all the way back to, you know, how things were initially done in tech sales. And that was probably selling something that was on, that was deployed on premise, or in other words, you had to go actually sell hardware or servers on, on premise to a company. And those were usually large multi-million dollar, very complex deals. And, you know, historically the way that that was done was sort of the, uh, what they call the road warrior methodology, which is you're, you're going around, you know, trying to use a Rolodex to set up an on an in-person meeting with an executive. And then, you know, you demo the, the hardware product and you bring it in. It's all this, this very complex process. And with the, you know, the advent of SaaS or cloud computing, things have gotten much, much easier in, in terms of how we sell. But even when I started my career, I came in to my first SaaS selling role and I was given an Excel sheet with, I think, five or 6,000 email addresses in it and told and phone numbers and, and said, hey, look, here's some data we pulled from a database go and call these numbers, go and email these email addresses, do it as fast as you can and generate some leads. That's it. That's that's all we're going to so argue with. So it's a complete and total numbers game, which, you know, I do agree with the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, there there is, you know, there's value in volume, I think. Yeah. I think volume is still an important aspect of, of your go-to-market in SaaS. 
the problem with that is I think the last stat I read is we're over 20, there's over 20,000 SaaS companies in the world today. And it's probably higher than that. Those are 20,000 that have raised venture capital. Yeah. There's probably another I don't know, 10,000 SaaS companies that have bootstrapped or, or self-funded. So let's just say there's 30,000 SaaS companies on the planet. Each of those SaaS companies probably has at least one, but probably more like five sellers or business developers who are doing, you know, outbound emails, there's now this whole marketplace of sales automation technology. So I, as a startup founder, if I started a startup tomorrow, I could go and set up a tool that can blast out emails until the cows come home. I can, you know, auto dial so that I just sit at my desk and my phone is constantly ringing executives until I get one. There is so many tools out there that do that. And I'm not absolutely not bashing those tools. I use a lot of those tools in my day to day. The challenge in the market is there's so much noise. How does an executive know what's truly valuable and what's truly a support to their business or supplemental to their business versus what's just, you know, prospecting noise out there? So the old way started with just hard phone calls, making a lot of cold calls, sending a lot of cold emails. The industry sort of evolved into this sales tech methodology, which is how do we blast out as many emails using automation or how do we automate our phone calls so that they just, you know, it's constant, the machine's constantly running. Those are still needed. And I, I still think that that's part of uh, what an old manager used to call part of a complete breakfast in sales. You got to do some calls, you got to do some emails, but especially over the last 24 months, when we think about everyone shifting remotely, you can no longer go on site for the most part and visit an executive. It is starting to come back a little bit. I've got colleagues that are starting to book on site meetings now, which has it's been two years since we've been able to really do that effectively. So that does help. I, I'm a big advocate of getting in person, especially if you're selling to an executive level audience, get in person, go on site and be present. But what do you do when you know companies aren't back in the office yet? How do you sell through Zoom effectively? And and that's where you know this this kind of transition from being just the old status quo seller that's making a lot of phone calls, sending a lot of emails to you're also creating content, you're posting on social media like Twitter, LinkedIn, even Facebook, and you're building an audience that can then come to you inbound and say, hey, I saw your post about why contact centers are wasting money on XYZ technology. And that struck a chord with me. That is something that we are dealing with. How do we connect and, and work on uh, solving that problem for our business? And again, no one's viewing you as a sales rep at that point. They're viewing you as a, a community leader, a thought leader that has real valuable ideas that might solve problems in their businesses. So yeah, just to kind of recap everything I said, the old way is lots of phone calls, lots of emails, smile and dial as they call it, grind it out. It's a numbers game. If you just email a thousand people this week, someone's bound to be out there looking for this, this widget. But what we're finding is that because everything is getting so saturated and because there's 30,000 other SaaS companies doing the exact same playbook, there's really you know no difference between myself and the 10 other people that have emailed an executive that day. And, and 10 is a conservative number. I think I've read that you know, your average CEO, especially in like the Fortune 1000, is probably getting 50 cold outreach emails a day. And you know, ironically, there's not as many calls going out to those individuals. So I'm still a big advocate of making cold calls, especially if you're you're very strategic about it and there's a there's some purpose behind that call. And I use a couple of different playbooks myself to, to make sure that, that call calls effective, but the, the blasting of, you know, thousands of emails out to a, an executive buyer every single week, at this point, they're just going in the spam folder and that executive is not getting any value from a cold email that says, you know, Hey, KJ, can I get 15 minutes of your time? You're going to love our demo. 
demo of what? What problem yeah, does it solve? Why should I care? Yeah, well, why the hell should I care? Like this quantity has missed the quality. You know, it's like there is a formula of quantity, quality, viability, right? Absolutely. And so what's this doing to the average SaaS sales guy? Like from what's your the, own experience and what you see, I mean, you talk to a lot of guys on your podcast, you have people mm -hmm. reaching out to you, right? They're starting to realize, gosh, I need to be an influencer, right? Totally different way of selling, right? But what is the status quo doing in terms of to the sales guys, to the numbers, mm -hmm. what's happening there? Yeah. Sales guys and sales gals, because <laughs> there's yes, a lot of- well, that's what I mean. <laughs> We're part of the guys group, um, right? Yeah, yeah. Lumped into guys. So it causes high burnout and it's frustrating. It's frustrating when you know your leadership in sales is saying, you know, Jesse, if you just made more phone calls, you'd be successful here. If you just sent a thousand more cold emails this week, this would work for you. That is, is frustrating. It's leading to high burnout. This is a very high burnout space. I actually just did a recent episode on, you know, sort of managing mental health and some of those things in the profession because it is stressful. And if your manager is just telling you, man, if only you were playing the numbers game better, you'd win. But you do that and it doesn't work, it's not working, then what, right? So I think it just creates this sort of cognitive dissonance where, you know, again, your leadership, your sales managers, your sales coaches are saying, you just need to make more phone calls and you'll be successful. You just need to send more emails to be more, more successful. And when you do that and implement it, it doesn't work. Then you sort of leave yourself burning out of the industry and finding, you know, another, another role in a tech company or going and doing something else different altogether. And the pattern repeats. And, and the pattern repeats. And it's not just the burnout, it's just missed numbers. This, you know, being in SaaS sales is an incredibly lucrative game if you play the game right. But if you're not playing the game effectively, then I had a mentor of mine used to say sales is the highest and lowest paying job on the planet. You're either earning the highest you can or you're not earning anything because sales is very much a, you eat what you kill. And, you know, if you can't do that because you're just sticking to that status quo, then what do you do? How do you, how do you hit your numbers? How do you continue on in the profession? So that's really the challenge. And that's why the shift has to happen more broadly. And the best sellers, especially the ones that have been on my show, there's, there's a number of guests that have been on my show that have seen seven figure W2s from implementing content. One of them, Brandon Fluharty, I'll call him out, had a fantastic idea, which was writing an open letter to the executives at the companies that he does business with. And he did this for a major airline, wrote an open letter where he documented some of the friction points in their customer experience and said, look, I've taken you know, several hours to write this letter up. All I'm asking for is 30 minutes of your time where I can show you how I would fix these things. And you know, I'm not going to promote a widget or a tool or a platform or a software or a SaaS. I'm just going to say, let's talk to people about these different points on your customer journey where I'm running into an issue. If I were, I am a real customer and I'm, you know, legitimately having a hard time proceeding through and doing business with you because of these hurdles, let's talk about those. So doing creative things. And he, he's someone who's been, you know, very vocal about more reps needing to create content. And that really, that is the role of being a sales rep, especially in a, you know, a high ticket SaaS company is creating content that's valuable to your buyers. And it can be very specific like that. It opens letter to the executives at a major airline saying, this is a problem that needs to be addressed. I have some ideas, happy to share those. Let's just get 30 minutes. Yeah. That's badass. Did he, did he yeah. land the account? 
he landed the account. And he's, he's, <laughs> okay. He posts his W-2s. This guy posts his W-2s. He's made over seven figures the last several years in, in SaaS selling. That's really, I think, you know, the holy grail in SaaS sales is if you have a seven-figure W-2, I mean, you're just absolutely killing it. And, uh, you know, he's, yeah, he's doing all kinds of interesting things. He's also creating content for sellers. And he's been on my show several times at this point. So, yeah, that's the outcomes that you can look forward to as you start to shift your focus from the old status quo numbers game to thought leader, content creator, and someone who adds value to the buyers. Yeah. So I want to get into this thought leader aspect, but there's one thing that you said, this burnout, right? Mm -hmm. That's expensive for companies. Absolutely. Super expensive. It's not just the burnout of the sale, but I'm looking at the company and their growth plans. And of course the founders and management, that's hugely expensive. You know, you hire a salesperson, they're not cheap, right? And then they burn out, you lose institutional knowledge, you lose that, you know, outflow of mm-hmm. maybe they were great salespeople and they burn out, right? Like, do you have any idea of what that turnover costs to these companies? I do. And there, there's a lot of thought leaders out there that talk about this topic because there's an interesting stat. I don't remember which research body came up with this, but the average tenure for a VP of sales, not even a contributor in a SaaS company is 18 months. That's awful. Think about that. 18 months is not long enough to do anything in a business. And I, I would imagine that the frontline reps, it's an even shorter tenure. This is a huge problem in SaaS. This is, I, I'm overdue a, an episode on this uh, on my show because what you see is a lot of reps that are sticking around for 12 months, 18 months max. And then because the culture of the company is very much the status quo and the old way of doing things, and that's it, you're measured on your you know dials and your outbound emails, they're deciding that it's it's not worth sticking around they're not hitting their targets. And so after 12 months, they jump ship. So as far as cost with SaaS companies, for the most part, it's a pretty simple math equation for account executives. You, and depending on how early the SaaS company is, if you come in as an AE to a very early stage SaaS, you should at the very least be able to sell one to three X what your total earnings are. And most SaaS reps can make $200,000 a year if they're hitting their targets. So when you think about it that way, that's an early, early stage SaaS. If you're, you know, rep one through four in a SaaS company, that founder can expect that you'll produce, you know, somewhere between one to three times your earnings. Now, the more mature and the further the long, further along the company, these big, you know, gar- you know, kind of gargantuan software companies in the space, they can see like a seven to 20 X return on a sales rep. So if you're paying a sales rep $200,000 a year and you're getting, you know, a 10x return on that, that's huge, 2 million bucks. And if you if that person leaves after 12 months or 18 months, then, you know, that's there's not only the opportunity cost because now you've got to go replace that person, that's going to take time and resources, there's fees to to do recruiting, but now you're you're losing out on let's just say 2 million dollars in revenue for that year that would have been booked if that rep would have stuck around and been productive. It's huge money. There, there's they're playing with huge numbers in SaaS because a SaaS company valuation can also go gangbusters as revenue increases. You see these like 
I think 10x multiples is what when when I started in SaaS, a 10x multiple was like was like pretty normal. But now you're seeing companies exit with like a 20 times multiple of what their revenue is. And there's probably examples of, of even larger than that. But that all comes, that multiple on a SaaS valuation comes from the revenue generated because it's a it's a recurring revenue. And that's the other thing to think about too, is the lifetime value of a SaaS customer, especially at some of these large enterprise SaaS companies. It, it could be in the tens of millions or more because you have uh, you know a big company paying for paying a million dollars a year and they stay with a vendor for 10 years. That's huge. And so if you miss out on those opportunities because you can't keep the best and brightest talent because you're still sticking to this message of you're not playing the numbers game well enough. You're not making enough phone calls and you need to do more. You need to send more emails. And that's that's all I'm going to give you. You know, I, I can't tell you anything else other than just keep sending the same message, asking for 30 minutes of someone's time and not giving anything thing in return. That's the cost. We're talking tens of millions of dollars here in lost opportunities in terms of ARR, not even to mention the cost of having to backfill and replace reps that are turning out. So it's a huge industry problem. It's probably one of the biggest challenges facing founders and SaaS leaders right now is how do you retain, how do you attract and retain the best and brightest reps? How do you coach those reps in a way that allows them to go out into the marketplace and create thought leadership? And it's a, it's a huge compounding effect too, because if you have, let's say you have a, a team of 50 account executives and even just 10 of those account executives are out creating content that's relevant in the industry, that compounds. People are going to start seeing that on social and realizing, hey, the reps over, there's, there's a few really great examples of companies that are doing this, by the way, where, and I'll call one out, which is Gong. They sell a SaaS that is aimed towards sales leaders, but they've trained their entire team to post valuable content on LinkedIn because that's where most of their buyers are. I don't think all of their reps are, are posting content, but a good majority are, and now they are the the category leader for this, you know, sales and engagement space or sales enablement space. And so that's the, the impact it can have. Even if you have some small subset of your reps posting content that's relevant to your buyers, word gets around that people on that team know what they're talking about. And they're not just there to cold call you and interrupt your day. They're there to actually partner with your business and solve problems. Yeah, it's information and decision makers are looking for information to make the decision. Yeah, I think it is the biggest pain point for SaaS companies, this churn in sales, it's definitely impacting them. That's what we hear from our clients. So let's talk a little bit more about the disruption and the, mm -hmm. the content creation. I mean, you explained it very simply and very beautifully, right? But how did you get, like, how did you get onto this? What made you start doing this? And how do you go, are you, are you looking at the pain point, the real pain points of what you're solving? And then you decided to, I mean, it's an influencer world today, right? It's a PR world. Yeah. You're talking about Forbes, you're talking about all these different, you know, Harvard Business Review, TechCrunch, all this publications where it's third-party credibility and you bring that content to your potential prospects. How'd you start that? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm at a little bit of an advantage, full disclosure. I started my career in the media world so before I got into software, I spent some time in you know, working for Gannett, which is one of the largest media companies out there. I know I shared with you previously my background, my, my undergraduate degree was in journalism and mass communication. So 
part of that degree also, I sort of fused media with business. And I feel like from that, that development, I learned how to write really well. And I learned some of the fundamentals of journalism and, and, you know, the pyramid style of writing and making things interesting and engaging for a reader. So I'm at a, a slight advantage in that front. I love content. I love writing, producing content, hence the, the, the podcast that I do. So I'm already sort of from the media world. Now that is not to deter anyone who has a business or a science background or an engineering background from trying to also create content. I think what I saw was I just observed other people doing it and, and finding results from it. I had several mentors who were creating content and said, you know, look, you're, you've already got the, the, the structure here to do this. Just go ahead and start writing something, just put something out there. And so it is, it's scary because I worried a lot about being challenged. One of the biggest fears, I'll address one of what probably is the biggest fear for any SaaS seller that's listening, who's saying, well, I don't have a media background. And also my prospects are going to call bullshit on me because they know more about their industry than I'm ever going to. They work in it. Yes. But again, kind of back to being a curator, can you help curate content though, that they may have not had a chance to look at? And you also don't ever want to approach your buyers as if you know more about their industry than they do. You just want to ask if it's helpful and if there's, you know, insight in what you are sharing. So short answer to the question is I, you know, just kind of saw other people doing it and realized they were they were seeing big results from it and decided to just get started. And one piece of advice I'll give anyone out there is find the medium or the platform or the channel that works best for you. For some people that's tweeting for other people that's LinkedIn. For me, I enjoy recording podcasts. I I like to talk. So talking is probably one of my, you know, that's my platform of choice. And so uh, podcasting was an obvious one for me. I know a lot of reps who have found a lot of success with video content and that's huge. Just, you know, think about the, the world we live in today. There's so much consumption of things like TikTok and YouTube what if you created a, a one minute you know, video clip of you demoing your product and showing this brand specifically where it could work for them? So that is a, a very effective way. And it's much better than making a cold call or sending a cold email with no value. Oh, that's in. badass. Yeah. Because they're so, busy and they could watch it one minute and see if they're interested in going forward. So you do you have like a call to action on all of your you know, influencer reach out or do you do a soft call to action? What do you do? Great question. Soft call to action seems to work a bit better. You don't want it. You don't want to complicate the the content by adding a hard, you know, book time with me right now and I'll demo it for you tomorrow. You know, I'm being dramatic here, but that's again, the old status quo is you got to be aggressive and ask for the time, get 15 minutes tomorrow to show them. We can't wait. You don't want to be too aggressive. You want to almost leave and, and, you know, going back to the example that I shared of, of an open letter to executives and this individual shares that, that letter, the template for that letter. And it's very soft. It's, Hey, look, I've written this letter. I would love to have a chance to share some ideas with you, but I'll, I'll leave that up to you. I'm not going to push for, you know, a demo or a meeting tomorrow. So I tend to, with my content, a lot of times I don't even ask for anything. It's just, Hey, wanted to share this was thinking about you. KJ, I thought about our conversation the other day. You mentioned that you were having some challenges with, uh, you know, employee churn. And I found this article in Harvard Business Review that was relevant, specifically this paragraph here. And, and you know, sometimes I'll, I'll copy and paste that and say, you know, specifically section three here, or paragraph, whatever, talks about some ways that you can work on employee retention that I think you'll find interesting. So, and then I won't say anything else, you know, no, all right, KJ, can you get on the phone tomorrow and let's, let's do a demo of our software. It's a reach yeah. and withdraw. Mm-hmm. Like... 
<laughs> yeah, no, I love it. It does create a meaningful conversation. I don't think you can put anything on the communication line until you have a communication line. It sounds to me that you're establishing a line first. Absolutely. So a lot of people listening to this or a lot of sales leaders listening to this are going to say, well, hold on. How are you going to hold your prospect accountable? Sales is very much a give get, right? If I give content, then I expect, you know, a next step as the, as the take from that. Right. And that's <laughs> true. Like a bad date. It I'm does take you to yeah. dinner and I'm going to expect something. <laughs> That's so true. It's a bad date. For most business selling, you do still want to have some structure to your, totally. your sales process. You don't want to just keep giving, giving, giving and, and never get anything in return. It is still very much, you know, your time is valuable. Your production and results are valuable also. So here's, here's something else that I did recently. So for my audience, I put together a short course called the six figure close plan. And something that I advocate a lot is putting together a close plan, which to, to summarize what that is, it's basically a project plan for getting a deal done. And this works especially well for larger ticket SaaS deals where this works and where you can incorporate your content and your thought leadership strategy into this is basically there's a template that you can put, you know, what's our end state, right? Our end state is that we sign paperwork and that we move forward in partnership and we work on implementing and deploying our software in your business, right? That's the, the end point. Let's just say our goal is to get that done by May 31st. Mm -hmm. What has to happen between now and May 31st to make sure that we stay on target with that project? Most of the time, what I see is a lot of SaaS sellers go out they have a good conversation. Maybe they are even incorporating some of the things we're talking about, like they're sending thoughtful and valuable content. But then what happens is the buyer is left to have to make guesswork around what they need to do. So, hey, Jesse, that was an interesting conversation. I'd love to buy from you, but I don't, thanks for the content, helpful, but now what? Give them some directional control, right? Here's the next steps. Right. So my, my close plan actually has, it's, it's like a milestone document. It's a project plan. And it says, look, if we want to go live with this software on May 31st, here's what we need to do from, from then, you know, from now until then and start, let's start with getting an NDA in place. Maybe that's the, the next step is let's get an NDA in place so we can start talking freely about your technical requirements. Let's set up a call between, you know, my vice president of sales and your vice president of operations. So that's known as executive peering in SaaS sales. Let's get, you know, a leader talking to another leader because once that starts to happen, it's easy to get the buy-in from that executive sponsor great. So let's schedule that call for, you know, March 21st or whatever. And let's also do, you know, we're going to need to satisfy the technical requirements. Let's do a technical peering call where I have someone who's technical on my side, talk to someone who's technical on your side. They're going to check and make sure from a cybersecurity standpoint, everything checks out. They're going to make sure that everything integrates well, and they're going to have that conversation. Okay, great. Now we need to review pricing. Let's schedule the pricing call. So all of it gets mapped out. And what's cool about it is, a lot of times I will just share the document in like Google Drive with my buyers. And I say, let's just fill this out together. This is a, a joint effort between the two of us. We're partners. So again, back to the mindset shift. We're partners here. I'm not selling you anything. I'm a strategic consultant. And I'm gonna, we're gonna sign each other tasks within this document. So if there's something that I need to do, you tag me on this and put a date that's a deadline for this. And if that's, you know, I need to go get a price reduced or whatever that is 
tag me in it and let's do this. And so you know a deal is going to close when you have this Google Doc open and you see your prospect in there filling out fields saying, hey, this was completed on March 17th and we're all good to go there. Now we just need to do this. And they've added a couple of steps in because they found out on their side, there's a whole process to, to onboard new vendors. That's when you, you know, that is for me, one of the strongest signals that you are going down the right path is you're mutually collaborating on this, this document, this closed plan, and everybody's tracking towards this date. That's how you make your deals more predictable. That's how you get more span of control over the conversation because, you know, again, it's a joint effort. You know, of course, part of that is infusing valuable content in and making sure that they feel like you're a thought leader, but there's also no better way to, to prove yourself as a thought leader and an expert than, hey, I'm going to build a project plan start to finish that's going to show you exactly how we're going to implement this software for you and kick this off on, on May 31st. Sounds like you just revised and renamed more smartly the sales process, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, but you're making the, I mean, not to dumb it down, but I look at sure. that and I go, you can look in the CRM and see where the, or the, the uh, sales project management and see where the guy is, right? He's made mm -hmm. this call. He's got this, the proposal, yada, yada, but you have made it interactive. Interactive. That's, that's the key. The status quo was Hey, you know, Jesse, make sure to update your sales force and add in all the people you're talking to and tell your sales manager what the next step is and what where we, you know, where things need to go to get this deal done. That process cuts out the buyer to tie everything together that we've talked about. If you really want to be perceived as as that thought leader, that partner, the strategic partner in the deal, bring the actual buyer into that part of the conversation. Now you can't really do that if you're just operating out of Salesforce. I, I mean, that's not a knock on Salesforce. It's a great tool, but you know, you obviously can't bring a, a prospect into your internal conversations and systems with your leadership. But one way to do that is create a mutual doc that goes out and, you know, it's a project plan. This is, yeah. this is a project. And you know, what's even better about this too, or what's also great for reps out there listening is if you do a plan like this, your one-on-ones with your manager are going to be pretty straightforward because they're going to say, what's going on with this deal? How come that hasn't closed yet? Well, it hasn't closed because it's supposed to close on May 30th. That was our plan. Or, you know, maybe, maybe it's not May 30th, April 30th, because we're going to deploy in May, on May 31st and we need a month to do that. So I have all the exact specific dates and, oh, look, the, the buyer is in there right now. She, you know, he or she is updating the next step and, and, you know, closing out that open task. So you're exactly right. It, it brings collaboration into the traditional, the status quo sales process and makes buying a collaborative effort and not just a, I sit back and let you sell to me. This is a joint project that we're working on. We're thinking of this like a consultant. Yeah. Who are the early adopters of this type of selling? Well, uh, that's a really good question. So I was, I've been so fortunate. I started my tech career in Austin where I worked really closely with some leaders out there that scaled very large and fast growing SaaS companies. And so I kind of learned this from just working closely with some stellar sellers out there and sales leaders. I won't name everyone because there's a lot of them. A couple of the companies that came up in sort of the mid 2000s started implementing something like this. The challenge was, is at that time, people weren't sending Google, you know, shared Google Docs to, to their prospects. So that part, that piece of the puzzle wasn't quite there yet. But here we are in 2022 and everyone's worked from home. Most everyone has access to Google Drive or, you know, you don't have to do it on Google Drive. This can be done on Microsoft or, or really any collaborative yeah. platform. Yeah. But People were doing some, you know, reps were doing something like this, even in the, you know, kind of mid to, you know, 2010 to 2015. 
it just wasn't still wasn't quite as collaborative as it can be today. And I think the other shift is, this is an interesting stat. I think I heard this from Forrester that the millennial generation is now the generation that's buying technology because they've now come to a point in their careers where they're leading teams and managing processes and things like that. And as that generation continues to, to have more say and control over how brands are buying technology, they want to do things in the way that they came up doing them. And, you know, having a collaborative or a social media oriented sales strategy is exactly what, you know, the millennial generation, how it's how they receive information. This, they've always had computers as part of their, you know, education and their upbringing. And so it's, it's obvious that they would have a say in the sales process, that it wouldn't be this bifurcated thing where the sales rep controls the whole process and pushes the ball. It's very much a collaborative thing. So I think it's a generational shift as well. I think it's also, you know, the, the technology is finally there where collaboration can occur between two people without there being major security risks and things like that. Right. So it's it's a few different factors. There's a lot of, you know, again, sales leaders and reps that that came up in kind of the 2000 teens and started implementing something similar to this. But now it's just to a point where it, it can be fully collaborative. And who are the ones that are reticent to change? There's a lot of them. Who are the SaaS vendors that need to change or... Well, I don't know. You, <laughs> the answer is yours. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. this new adoption of sales, right? It's a, and you're talking about it being a two-way flow, two-way street, right? Collaborative. So, you know, who are the ones that are reticent to change? Who needs more education? Who are like the dinosaurs in this? Yeah, there's a few. And I, I think more than giving specifics on this, I would just say if if you're a seller, uh, or, or you're a leader coming into a company where the culture is a numbers game is, you know, let's just, Hey, look, when I was, when I was a rep in the late eighties <laughs> or the early nineties or whatever, this is how we did it. We had our Rolodexes, you know, we made a bunch of phone calls. We made sent a bunch of emails, whatever it was, listen for those. And, and if you're hearing those, then that is absolutely ripe for disruption. And, you know, reps do need to, to challenge their, their leadership teams, not in a negative way, but just uh, look, Hey, I know that sending a thousand cold emails worked in 2009, but now there's 30,000 SaaS companies out there doing the same thing. So we need to get more creative. We need to be thought leaders. We need, and you know, here's one that's interesting. Here's a way that a rep could actually challenge their, their founders or their executive leadership team at a SaaS company. You know, Hey, Mr. and Mrs. Founder, are you writing on Medium or writing blog posts? Are you creating podcast content? Are you going on podcasts and, and acting as a guest? Are you talking about your vision? You're the founder. You need to be the forefront of all of this. If you're trying to, to create a new category or revolutionize a process, you need to be putting yourself out there. And I've been at my share of SaaS companies where the founders were absolutely terrified of putting themselves on a stage, whether that was a podcast or an in-person event or blogging. And it was this huge missed opportunity because a lot of these founders in SaaS are brilliant people. And they come from either you know a technical background or a business background, but they have great ideas, a great vision, but they're afraid to actually get out there and share it. So I think any SaaS company out there who's not creating this kind of content and and putting their founders or their leaders out on a stage also. And that's, you know, again, allowing the whole marketplace to hear their voice and see their vision. And those ultimately turn into leads for the sales team. Anyone out there who's not doing that is definitely ripe for, for disruption. That's right. Because again, it is a PR world. It is. It is an influencer world. That is for sure. So how did you, like, you started off in journalism mass communications, right? Mm -hmm. What made you decide, like, tell me about 
Jesse, what made you decide to go to sales and what gave you the epiphany like, hey, I can use this here? Yeah, this is a pretty short story. It's I basically failed at doing other things. So when I got my my degree, I took a role as a project manager at a website development company or a media digital agency. And unfortunately, it was quickly determined that project management and sort of being down in the weeds of, of building something wasn't my strong suit. And in fact, when I, when I left that role, the manager in that role said specifically, you know what you'd be really good at? sales. You should go get into sales. You're really good with the customers. This was following a big mess up that I had that broke a major client's website and caused all kinds of problems, all because I wasn't paying attention to some of the small details. And, and she said, hey, you should go get in sales. Because what happened after I broke this client's website is I got to be the one to go to dinner with the client and say, I am so sorry for breaking your website and causing <laughs> all these up. business disruptions. Here's a, a lobster and steak dinner in Scottsdale and, and we're all good, right? And you know, after that, she said, you're really good at sales. You, you did a, a fantastic job of eating some humble pie and going out and, and being in person with the customer and, and solving the problems. So when I left that role, I landed in, you know, media sales at Gannett and did that for a while. But what I didn't find fulfilling personally about media sales, and I think it's a great profession, it's very lucrative. I like to show things when I sell. So I'm a big advocate of demoing a product or having something tangible that I can show off. Media is a little bit more conceptual. When you're selling, you know, banner clicks or search engine optimization or something like that, it's, it's you've got to sell the futures a little bit. Now, that's not to say in software you're not sometimes having to sell futures, but I was, you know, intrigued by this this idea that I could go and 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 learn a technology product. At the time, I was consuming a lot of tech publications myself, and then I, you know, just candidly, I googled what is the high highest paid sales profession in tech, stumbled across SaaS sales, saw what you know people were, were saying they could earn or what the upside was and said, that's what I need to do. I'm not in a city where that's really done. This is 10 years ago. And so I moved myself to Austin and got my first opportunity, just started applying somehow a tech startup out in Austin took a chance on me and I moved to, to Texas sight unseen, having never worked in the industry before, having had sold before, but not software. And there was a you know strong chance of failure. There was a really good opportunity or good, really good chance that I was going to have to move back home after a short amount of time. Fortunately, and all the stars aligned, had a fantastic first sales manager in that SaaS role who taught me a ton of great tools basically about how to, to sell well. A little bit on the older school side, <laughs> you know, a little bit more status quo, but it was enough to get me enough results that the career kept going in, in tech sales. So to sum it up, you know, a strong interest in tech, the earning potential as a SaaS seller is, you know, really bar none with the exception of, I think if you're getting into like pharmaceutical sales or some of those can be very lucrative and, and more lucrative. I think media is up there as well, but you can really earn a lot on, if, and if you're going to go through the hassle of selling too. If you want to have a career in sales, you might as well sell the most lucrative product you can so that you can make the most money you can. That's sort of my mindset about if I'm going to be selling something, I might as well sell something that I'm passionate about, something that I can demo or show off, and something that has just an insanely high margin on it. SaaS is a super high margin business. You can write some, you know, some code and turn it into an application. And people will continue to subscribe to that for years to come if you sell the right types of deals, right? So insanely lucrative. And uh, you know, if you're interested at all in technology, I think that's that's the obvious choice, being able to demo a SaaS interface. And now 
every company is a, is a software company in some form or fashion. A few years ago, I was at a startup that was working with companies like Capital One and Vanguard or, or big banks. And these large banks have, at this point, some of them have larger engineering teams than they actually have bankers because you know, so much of the world we live in is centered around digital experiences and building you know, digital streaming technologies and data technologies. And so you know, even big banks and brands, I think, you know, at this point, Walmart has Walmart labs, you know, Walmart, the retailer that started in Arkansas is now, you know, one of the largest employers of engineers on the planet. It's crazy. And so I think it's something that everyone should embrace in, in, in some way. I mean, learning about SaaS and cloud computing technology, I think is, is going to be continuously important in the business world because that's where things are going is these, these digital experiences and data. It is where things are going. And then there's SaaS yeah. to make SaaS better. <laughs> That's really right. what's happening. Right. I had another guest who um, believes SaaS is ruling the world and will rule, rule the world. So yeah, I totally agree with you there. Well done on your foray to Texas. I am from Texas. That is the spirit of Texas all the way through. Do or die in the attempt. You did it. So well done. Yeah. 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 I, Texas is a great place. A fan, Austin's a fantastic city to start a tech career. Big, you know, I would not be where I am today if it weren't for the opportunities that, that came about from my move to Austin. So, and I will say this, I mean, you talked about your first sales manager and a little, you know, a little bit of the status quo. There are some foundational basics with the status quo, mm -hmm. but how you use that today is the disruption. That's a great point. So yeah. And yes, you do still don't, to... you know, don't listen to this podcast and tell all your sales guys to throw everything out the window. <laughs> There's foundational basics that work, but you've got to embrace the PR world today the influencer that, world, the content creation, and really helping and selling based off decision-making, not just features and benefits and speeds and feeds, right? That is such a great, I'm, I'm actually really glad you called that out because I've spent today sort of talking about bashing the status or, you know, breaking the status quo, not bashing it, breaking the status quo. But you're exactly right that there are still fundamentals that can be found in that older way of doing things. And that, that is still something that most reps need to learn. I, I'm definitely not coming on saying that someone should stop making cold calls today or stop sending you know, prospecting emails. What I think is important is incorporating this new mindset into it, which is how can I, when I call somebody, think of myself as a strategic partner in their business? And that way the call doesn't come across as salesy. It comes across as, hey, wait a minute, this person seems to want to help us. So that, yeah, absolutely. There is a foundational piece there that everyone should still learn the, the fundamentals of sales. And then once you've reached a point where that's not working well for you anymore, or if you're in a culture or company where that's all that's, that's, you know, that's, that's the only advice that you ever get from leadership is just make more calls, make, send more emails. That's when you can start to think about your own content strategy and how can I start to position myself as a thought leader to my buyers? How can I start to create content on a channel that I like, that I find interesting? Again, whether that's podcasting or blogging on Medium or writing long posts on LinkedIn or tweeting, whatever that is, how do I then sort of embrace my, my channel or my platform and start to reach my buyers through, through those mediums? Yeah, well said. So before we go and before we find out where people can get a hold of you, tell me, like, what do you do outside of selling? What's your crazy passion? Yeah, so uh, good question. I'm pretty busy stage of life right now. I have two young kids and uh, they, they keep me pretty busy. 
if I'm not with the family, I'll probably be out mountain biking somewhere. In fact, I moved from Texas back to Arizona because of my mountain biking passion. Arizona is a great place for hitting the trails. There's so much to offer here and there's a lot of accessibility to Colorado and Utah and, and, and places like that. So big in mountain biking, I play a little guitar and then, you know, really just spend a lot of time on the podcast as well. It's, it's definitely a huge creative outlet for me is, is creating content, booking guests and, and having, you know, I'm learning a ton too. That's really why I started the show was I felt like there was a gap out there in content that was designed specifically for frontline sellers who are in the trenches every day selling frontline to their buyers. There's a lot of podcasts that focus on sales leadership and revenue leaders and founders and how they can hire salespeople. But there wasn't a lot of content that got into the meat of how to be better in the front lines as an individual contributor. So I spend a lot of time with the podcast. Yeah. Mountain biking, guitar. We love to travel when we can. It's been tough over the last couple of years to, to get travel done. That's pretty much it. That's awesome. I was always told growing up, salespeople rule the world, right? And they make the world go round, executives too, and so forth, mm-hmm. right? But I think it's great that your podcast really focuses on the front lines, the guys that are really selling, because they have the key data about everything that's changing and what needs to change and the guys that are actually really doing it, right? Yeah, that's a, so the whole show came about for that exact reason. I just felt, and I'm a huge consumer of podcasts myself. And I was listening to a bunch of different sales oriented podcasts, but again, most of them were, you know, Hey, if you're coming in as a sales leader, here's some things you can do to make your team more productive. That, you know, was interesting to hear. And I'm glad to have the perspective, but no, there, there was just not a lot of content out there where it was, Hey, you're in the seat every day. Here's how to make your selling more effective. And talking about things like we talked about today, which is how do you truly become a thought leader? How do you become a consultant in your, in your industry? And so it took me a really long time to finally get up the courage. So I'll make that really clear to everyone listening. I don't want to make it sound like I had this idea for a podcast or that I I got on this train of creating content. And suddenly the next day I was creating amazing content. It took me probably another eight or nine months before I finally put that first episode of my show out there. And I was terrified. I was terrified. No one would listen. Uh, (laughs) I just sort of embraced that though and said, look, you know, early on people aren't going to listen. And then I was terrified that I was going to get the peanut gallery critiquing every other word that I said. So it, it is, it's, you have to get past that and realize if the content's ultimately more valuable than, so let me, let me step back here and say, people will find your content valuable. And the other concern that I had is, well, it's such a saturated place. How do you, how do I stand out in all the other podcast noise out there? You know, anyone can ask this about blogging or, or any other form of, of social media posting, but everyone has a unique perspective on things and you need to find your angle and where, you know, your message, some of, you know, tell your story too. I'm a big advocate of telling your story. And I try to do that as much as I can on my show. And once you do that, there's people that will listen and find it very valuable. That is true. And there is power in getting multiple points of view. Mm -hmm. I think the most powerful people always look at multiple points of view so that they can make their own decision and judgment. Absolutely. So there you go. You're a powerhouse, (laughs) Jesse. How do people get a hold of you? How do they get a hold of you in your podcast? How do they get your six-figure clothes plan? Sure. Yeah. So my podcast is called SaaS Sales Players. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, really wherever you're listening to this show at, you should be able to find SaaS sales players. 
probably the best way to reach me is actually on LinkedIn. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. I'm trying to, to beef up my Twitter presence as well, but, but LinkedIn is sort of my primary method for, for reaching, you know, those who want to do business with me or want to learn more about the podcast or some of the selling playbooks that I put together. You can actually also find in my LinkedIn profile, a link to that six figure close plans. So if you are interested in purchasing that, the details of that are, are available there. But lastly, if you want to send me an email, you can send me an email at jesse at jessewoodbury.com. That's awesome. Thanks, Jesse. This has been fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, KJ. Amazing. You bet. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today or laughed, go tell someone about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with some tidbit from the show. Thank you for listening to the Disruption Interruption podcast, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now.